Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome to Real Life Church, particularly if you're a guest here. It's lovely to have you with us. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Um, and I want to extend a very warm welcome to you. All right, if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Ephesians, please? The book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. Um, and if you were with us last week, um, it was all bad news. I basically rolled out the bad news um, as written by the Apostle Paul about the human condition and everything um, about our situation um, as people, men and women before God and it wasn't very happy. Um, but this week is good news. Okay, so you've had the bad news. So if you've just turned out this week for the first time, <laughs> good timing. You missed all the bad news last week. You can catch it up online. It's on our website if you really want to hear it. Um, um, and then moving on to some of the good news. But before we kind of get into that, where's that? Oh, that's you. Anna, can you come and join us, please? I want to share some good news um, with Anna, and I'm just going to ask you, if you, Anna, a few questions, and she's going to share some stuff with you. So, first one, um, Anna, uh, where have you? It's this here. Where have you come from? It's kind of a bit of a not the question. Where have you come? These are the ones we talked about. You and Melanie talked about. Okay. So tell us, um, where have you come from then? Um, I grew up in a Christian family. Um, I've been to church um, most of my life. Um, probably up to I was about 15, where I stopped going to church. Is that? Yeah. Um, where I stopped going to church, I just didn't like find what I wanted in church at all. Um, so I stopped going and decided that I'd um, try and make myself happy in my own way. So why did you move to Sutton Coalfield to start a real life church? Um, Melanie told me. I think quite soon after you decided to go, um, that they were moving to Sutton Coalfield and asked me to go with her. At the time, I didn't really understand why she'd asked me, but I just said yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. And describe the people you live with and how wonderful they are. <laughs> They're all right. They're all right. <laughs> what happened with you and Jesus since you've been here? Since I've been here, I kind of just started like investigating God, what it would mean if I decided that I did want to follow God. Um, There's no notes on there, they're okay. just the questions. I'm just trying to work out like which bits of information you want for each question. Um, Give it all now. And then I, when I moved here, like, I started seeing something that I knew I wanted. Um, I started hearing um, God speaking to me, and I, to be honest, didn't really understand exactly what that meant. Um, when, oh, also, when I moved here, um, I still, to be honest, didn't really understand why I'd come. Um, like, everyone was coming to start a church, and I didn't even really have a relationship with God at all. Um, wasn't even really that interested. Um, and then, um, before we moved up, I obviously needed to get a job up here. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. And um, I was interviewing, and I got offered two permanent jobs before moving up here. And the way the NHS is at the moment, like, there just aren't permanent jobs. Um, I hardly know anyone that's on a permanent contract. But I got given like just two jobs. Um, so I had the pick of two permanent contracts. Um, which, I was like, oh gosh, that's so cool. But now I just realised that God was just all over it. Okay, and how have you dealt with your relationship with God since arriving um, here? Uh, since I've been up here, I've just been sort of investigating what it would mean to um, follow God. I um, knew that it was something I definitely wanted towards um, probably the new year of last year. Um, and then I went on holiday and um, 
thought I'd try doing it my way again. Um, and just it just like I just knew that it just wasn't like what was going to make me happy. Um, so when I got back from holiday, I was just like desperate. I was just I have to do something, sort it all out. Um, so I just prayed and I just said, like I just want to have a relationship with you. I want to know I'm forgiven. Um, yeah, so I'd say that's the day when I made a commitment. Um, and how has that ch changed your life since then? Um, I think one of the big things for me was that because I always believed in God, I knew that if I died, I would go to hell. <laughs> Which, um, but I think that was like one of the big things for me, that I was really scared that if something happened, I didn't like have any idea where I was going to go, what was going to happen to me. So, and now I just know that if I die, I'm going to go. Like, that's, I think that's given me a bit of a hope for the future. Um, and also now I just know that what God's got planned for me is probably better than what I've got planned for myself. So I, I just know that exciting stuff's going to happen. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well done. <laughs> Wonderful. Real Life Church is all about transformed lives, and we have one um, right there. Thank you for that, Anna. That was brilliant. Okay, looking at your Bibles, um, we were started at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at that section, verses 1 to 10, um, and you can kind of break the section into three parts. We had the bad news, which were the first few verses. We've got the good news, which is what we're going to look at today, and then the final sort of section verses there is our response to that um, good uh, news. So let me just read um, the passage to you. I'm going to start at verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, last week, the first few verses there was the bad news. It says, by nature and choice we were sinners talks about sin, it talks about trespasses. Sin is the falling short of God's moral standards, the fact that we do not reach them, and trespassing, trespass refers to um, acts, knowing acts of disobedience that we performed, that we don't meet God's standard, but we are actual, actually rebels as well, and we deliberately choose to disobey um, his commands, his rules. And as a result, we are under his right judgment for what we have done. It describes us in three ways. It says we were dead, we were spiritually dead, which means we could not respond to God. We could not choose God. We were completely cut off for him in that sense because of our rebellion. It says we were enslaved. And Paul talks about three things. He talks about the world, the devil, and the flesh. We're enslaved by the world, which is an external thing, which is the, the thought patterns and prevailing culture that we find ourselves in, which is set in opposition to God. 
And we are products of that and we are enslaved to that and everything around us, the worldview, pushes us away from God. And we can see it in our culture and it is repeated in culture through the ages that actually is set fundamentally against God and it doesn't want anything to do with God. We have the, the devil, the supernatural opponent who stands before God him and his army of demons who would seek to try and destroy and disrupt and tempt the servants of God and those who don't claim to, to know God away from him. So there's, you've got external pressures from the world but also from a supernatural point of view of, of trying to push us away from God and we are enslaved to them. And the final one was an internal one, the flesh, which is our own sinful nature, our own bias inside of us that forces us away from God. Like in a, bowl, a bowls ball. When you roll a bowls ball, it will veer one way or the other depending on which side the weight is on. And we were like that. We were weighted away from God. And even if we tried to follow him or tried to make our own standards, we even fell short of them. Have you ever tried to create your own rules, your own moral code, and then you find that you fall short of that, even the one that you set, let alone God's perfection? And we were enslaved by that, Paul said. Those external pressures and the internal one just led us away from God. And then finally it says we were condemned. We were an object of wrath, which meant we were under God's righteous anger and judgment. We looked at God's righteous anger and judgment and we found that it wasn't, it's not vindictive, it's not something like flying off the handle, it's not something that's just trying to get revenge. It's a constant focused um, act of God against sin. It is totally constant, totally, you can totally understand it because it is focused against one thing. It's not one of those ones, willy wonty. God has laid it out, I will act against sin. Um, and we found ourselves as rebels and failures before God under his judgment. Um, that was the bad news, and I spent a lot more time talking about it. But then we got to the first two words of verse 4, where everything changes. We did it last week, we're going to look at it this week. And that is, but God. I mean, if you wanted to boil down the kind of the Christian message, I mean, you could probably use, get away with using those two words. But God. And what we've got in the passage here, Paul has spent... Three verses outlying how bad the situation is. This is a terrible, terrible situation to find yourself in. It is hopeless and helpless and you are under um, the divine um, judgment of a holy God. And then, but then he jumps in and says, but God. Now we're going to get the good news, the wonderful news. And, and the word gospel actually just means good news. We sometimes hear that in church. Some churches are called gospel, talk about preaching the gospel, telling the gospel. Gospel just means good news. And so it should be good news, and here it comes. And the big idea of kind of where I'm going is that God's intervention in our lives has changed everything. God's intervention, not our wisdom, not our working it out, not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, nothing to do with us but God. Because of his intervention in our life, everything changed. Everything has changed. And if we look at the passage, we've got... You were dead, but God made us alive with Christ. You were enslaved, but God has seated us with Christ in a position of honour and power. You were the objects of God's wrath, but God has had mercy on us and shown great love towards us. God has taken the action to reverse our condition. We could not do it. And what we 
need to do as we kind of approach this is we need to hold in tension the wonderful good news of God with the wonderful bad news about our, consider, our, our condition. Because if you ignore one of the other, if you just take the bad news, you get into kind of self-pity and just, woe is me. If you just take the good news, you can just bigger yourself and say, aren't we wonderful? But actually, if you take both together, the good, bad news makes the good news better. If you recognise your condition and you recognise what God has done, then actually our response is fuller and deeper because you know what you have been saved from. We don't look back to dwell on it. We look back to worship God out of it, to enjoy what he's done. This is what we were like. But God has changed it and made us like this. And what I want to do is just look at a couple of things about the next few verses, what God has done and then why God has done it. The first one is what God has done. God has taken the initiative. Okay, God has taken the initiative and that's a fundamental thing we need to kind of grab out of this. Sometimes when we talk about um, us becoming a Christian, we talk about our testimony, sometimes it's referred to tell your story, tell you what happened. Because it's just talking from our perspective, we talk in the first person, we talk about I, this happened, I did this, I did this, I did this, result. Um, and that's just from our perspective. But behind that is a sovereign hand of a loving God. Okay. And so when we talk about when we became a Christian, when I responded at a meeting, when I said something at a youth group, when I stuck my hand up, when the preacher said, when I came to the front, and all these things, behind that, the only reason you could do that was because God acted in your life. God took the initiative. God was the one who enabled that to happen. It was all God's initiative to reverse our state. And the focus of these verses, if you look at it, it's the good news, but it's, the focus is God, it's not us. We are caught up in it, we are the recipients of it, but the focus of it is God. And the first thing he says, he made us alive with Christ. And this parallels what Paul has already said in the previous verses, that we're dead, but now we are alive. But the reason we're alive is because we are in Christ. We have been placed into him. It's not about us, nothing that we have done. As Christ died and rose from the dead, we too were dead and have risen and are now with Christ. There's kind of a parallel in our journey with what Christ had done. Christ was the one who kind of led the way, was the first fruits of what God intended to do and we have been joined in that from spiritual death now to spiritual life. And this is a sharp contrast between death to life. I was thinking about that today and actually... But for humans, the biggest contrast we can have in life is with death. That's the big. If you think about what it means to be alive, or what it means to be dead, what it means to be alive is for you, for blood to be pumping around your body, for muscles to be moving, the heart. It means that there's things in your brain, synapses firing off, messages throughout your body. It means you're feeling everything now, even the clothes on your body, you are feeling rubbing against your skin because you're alive. You're breathing in and out. Your ears are hearing and your eyes are seeing millions of messages and your brain is just processing all them and making sense of it and you are alive, you can move, you can, you can feel. To be alive is such a wonderful thing but then if we contrast that with being dead, all those things cease. And I don't know if you've ever seen it in reverse and actually seen someone for life go to someone who is dead. My, when my grandfather died, the night he died, I saw him before he died. We went away, we got called back to the hospital after he had died and there was all the family there and I saw him dead. And the change was staggering even from a very elderly man dying 
from being alive to being dead. And he wasn't full of life and vitality, kind of of an age that we are. And that change was staggering. And if you, you, you dwell about that and think, wow, that is huge, we've gone the other way. We were dead, but now we are alive. So there was nothing happening on a spiritual sense, nothing. But now, everything is happening. We've been made alive in Christ. All the things that have been promised that Paul has talked about through the beginning of uh, Ephesians, particularly that first section um, that we looked at, went through in great detail. We've been forgiven, we've been redeemed. We've been adopted as children, chosen before the foundation of the earth. And then Paul prays at the end of Ephesians 1, I want you to grasp that. I want you to be enlightened and understand that. That has all happened because we are now alive in Christ. And we can receive that and we can enjoy that. We were once spiritually dead, but now we are spiritually alive. It says, and then he goes on to say, we have been raised up and seated with him in heavenly places. So it's not just a case of you know, a dead body that is now alive. Think about Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead in the tomb. He Then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. That was stunning in and of itself. Imagine then Lazarus coming out of the tomb and then being taken to Jerusalem and then being enthroned as, as the king. You've got this not just alive, but there is something more. We have not just been made alive. It says we've been raised up and seated in heavenly places with Christ. So it's not just a case of actually being made spiritually alive so we can connect with God. We've been raised up and seated with Christ because we are in him. So we're receiving the benefits that Christ has got. Seated um, at God's right hand, seated in those heavenly places that Paul has talked about is a symbol of power, of honour, of authority and position and Christ has that and we've looked at that but we enjoy that with him. We have been raised up and seated with him. So it's not just being made alive which is wonderful. Lots of people are alive. You could be alive and be living in poverty but actually you're now alive but living in royalty and splendour in God because of what Christ has done. So we get to enjoy that with him. And as a result of being in that position of authority and power because of Jesus, if we look at the things that we were, they are no longer, we are no longer enslaved because we've been brought into a new kingdom. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, we're now in the kingdom of light. We're no longer controlled by the prince of the power of the air, which is what Paul just described him as, the devil. We're now in the kingdom of the sun. And so we are no longer enslaved. We don't no longer have to live by old standards, old rules. We brought into a new kingdom with new standards, new rules, new power, new authority to live by them. The bias to sin, it says in Romans, has been removed from us and we now have a tendency to righteousness. Because of the new nature we have received, because we are new creations, new being, we actually have a tendency towards things of God, a goal which we didn't have before. The devil that we were enslaved to is now a defeated foe in Christ. Everything is under his feet. He has not been completely defeated. It hasn't all been wrapped up, but he is on the ropes and one day it will be consummated and he will be gone forever. But we have been taken out of that kingdom and we are now told we can resist the devil. That's what Peter says, isn't it? Resist him. 
He'll flee from you. And we have been given the Holy Spirit in us to live that. And now he has no authority over us, no power us, no claim over us. If the accuser comes to us and accuses us of things we might have done, things we might have said, we now have an advocate, Christ, in heaven before the Father, says, no, he's mine. She's mine. Those accusations won't stand. The punishment has already been paid for on the cross. You are free. You are forgiven. Paul has already talked about these things. Um, And as a result of all those things, a new nature, a new kingdom, we're free from the power of the devil, um, we are now under, not under, God's condemnation and judgment. Because that has been poured out on another. That has been poured out on Christ in our place. We no longer have to take that because someone else has taken it for us. Which is just an awesome thing. We have been made alive, we are raised up and we are seated with Christ. And I don't know what happened to you. If you're a Christian here, what happened when you became a Christian? But I remember... Vividly, I was a, another one of these grown up in a Christian home. Uh, well, I want to say Christian home. Let me get it right. Church going home. My background is Anglican. We went to church um, regularly um, and uh, dressed up and all that kind of stuff, but it never meant anything. And all it did was turn me into a self righteous Pharisee, um, basically. That doesn't bode well, does it? We'll see what happens there. Um, Someone might, a parent might be coming to get, let's hope it's not um, my son. Um, Anyway, so what the church did was turn me into a self-righteous Pharisee where I thought I had to earn my my kind of rewards before God, earn my thing. I had a moral code, very strict moral code that I kept to and anyone else who didn't meet it I would look down upon. But I remember when I went to university, God uh, met me, uh, transformed me, broke me, showed me my sin, which was a terrifying thing when you actually stand before a holy God and he shows you what you are like, truly, and my sin was exposed and I was devastated. But I remember when I became a Christian and I confessed my sins and God filled me with his spirit that actually I could read things like I'm alive in Christ and I could know it. And I would say, do you know what? I was dead and now I'm alive because I can, I can feel, I know forgiveness. I can know what that means. I can know what it means to be free from slavery. I know what it means to be alive. I know what it means to be a child of God and go to my Father in heaven and call him Father. Jesus taught us to pray like that. And actually, when we've made alive, we, we can know that relationship with a Father in heaven. It's a beautiful thing. And that is what has happened in our lives. And it's not something that we should kind of take lightly. And it's good to dwell on it to remind us how wonderful it is. I, I'm even preaching here. I'm getting excited. I'm looking at people nodding. Like, That's a good thing. We should be enjoying this. We are now alive with Christ and we are seated in heavenly places with him, uh, which is just incredible. Let's look at the second thing. Why God did it. So we've got what he did, but why he did it. Now, if you read those few verses, it says um, the, it's all God's initiative, but what prompts that? It talks about his mercy. It talks about his love. It talks about his grace and it talks about his kindness. Now, our salvation, let's just clarify this again, it's all on the initiative of God and it is totally unmerited to us. It's all on his initiative. We were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned, but because of God's love and mercy and grace, 
he came to us to change our condition. And the way Paul describes them is actually he sticks words in front of them. He talks about being rich and he talks about great. It's not just love, it's great love. Rich in mercy. And these two words, it's, it's Paul's almost trying to underscore. It's not just love, it's great love. It's not just mercy, he was rich in mercy. And rich just points to abundant greatness, um, large amounts. Think Think super rich, think mega rich, think the filthiest, richest people on the planet. Bill Gates, I looked up, uh, who started Microsoft, he's worth $56 billion. And he wasn't the richest guy. There was another guy who's richer, but I didn't think you'd ever, ever heard of him. He's from Mexico. And he was $73 billion. So I won't use him because I don't know who he is. I don't know if you will, but most of us will probably know who Bill Gates is. $56 billion dollars and I don't know what a billion is it a hundred million thousand million what a thousand so fifty six thousand million dollars I heard the story that apparently Bill Gates was walking on the road and he saw say you know twenty thousand pounds on the floor I don't know why he would see that but just imagine he did twenty thousand pound on the floor twenty thousand dollars we use dollars if by the time he took him to pick it up and put it in his pocket he would have earned that much money it's not worth his time it's not worth the time to bend down, pick it up, put it in pocket. Look, look, I've just found some money. Because he'd have earned more in the time it's taken. <laughs> and you think, what? That is staggering. He is so rich that it's, I, I really think he couldn't spend it all even if he tried. Do you know, he's got that much uh, money. And I just think when we come to think about God who's rich in mercy, he's got way more than that. Bill Gates is a pauper by comparison to the riches of God. And that is what it is. It's rich in mercy. And so think about it like that. And then it says his love is great. Think large. Think vast. Think beyond kind of our human scope of understanding. We are currently uh, the Earth about 93 million miles from the sun. 93 million miles away from the sun. And I was looking up some sort of distances in space, and you know, well, let's, let's throw a few out just to kind of get the idea. And I found out, actually, because the distances in space are so vast, they don't use things like miles, because they're so small. They use light years to describe distances. And a light year is the distance light can travel in a year, which is about 95 trillion miles. There were so many O's on the end of it, I was like, oh, it's a trillion, right? <laughs> So one light year is 95 trillion miles-ish. I don't know if these are totally accurate, but long way. 95 trillion miles. The Milky Way galaxy is 150,000 light years across. I just... <laughs> synapses are just fizzling out, you know. That's how great the love of God is. In fact, it's much greater than that. It's way beyond that. But when you start thinking about these vast intergalactic distances, and that's just our little galaxy, which is one of probably another 100 million galaxies, you know, the vastness of space, the great love of God. And Paul is trying to underscore what he's talking about because those two things are what the communicable attributes of God, which means we can understand them. We, can, we, we know about love. We know about mercy. So they can become familiar to us because we're aware of what that means but actually when we talk about the love and the mercy of God it is on a whole different plane of kind of vastness and greatness um, than what we can and we shouldn't let it kind of just oh yeah love mercy no it's the vastness the riches of God which are way beyond what we can mercy is not getting what you deserve 
So for us, we deserve something, but God's mercy meant we didn't get it. It is showing, um, showing something um, to, to a recipient who is desperate and helpless. Someone in a completely desperate, helpless situation, mercy is having compassion on that individual, showing God's goodness um, in distress and misery. In the Old Testament, God is shown to be abounding in mercy, to have delight in those who are merciful, um, and it is, uh, he particularly shows it in the nation of Israel who constantly seem to disappoint him, let him down, go away from him. And we were dead um, in our trespasses and our sins and God had mercy on us. We were in the ultimate kind of pitiful, helpless state but God had mercy on us. He loved to us. Um, and then it talks about the riches of his grace in verse 5. It basically chucks in a kind of pull there when it says, by grace you have been saved. We're going to look at that more next time. But it kind of st- sticks in a sort of, uh, oh, by grace you have been saved. He later explains that. And this grace is a, a huge theological concept um, for, the, from the, for Christianity. And it's all through the um, Epistle of Ephesians. Anything you um, read by Paul it is big in there. But it, it sums up God's heart to people. It's the unmerited, unearned favour of God. It's everything opposed to something that you could earn and deserve by right. It sums up God's attitude towards sinners um, through Christ's work on the cross, his subsequent resurrection. It's all the grace of God. I mean, when I was growing up, the way that kind of you could remember a bit about grace was um, use the letters and it was God's um, God's reward at Christ's expense, grace. It's a way of learning it. The unmerited favour of God. And this, um, this grace of God is what has enabled it all to happen. It caused our redemption, it caused our forgiveness, it caused us to be alive in Christ, adopted as children, chosen before the world even began. And God has lavished this on us, lavished mercy on sinners, grace on sinners. And it wasn't just in the one-off act of our salvation, it continues throughout our lives... And even when we die and we go to be with God and he, he then sums everything up in himself, it will, will continue through the ages into eternity. He makes the point that they're immeasurable, these riches, that you can't go on. And the goal of it all is that we would ultimately glorify God out of it. That God has poured this stuff upon us, grace and mercy, and our response is receiving it and then turning it back into praise and actually saying, God, we love you, we worship you. And in that first section of Ephesians that we went all the way through, the goal of it all was that we would praise God and it would be to his glory. And even our salvation is not about us, it's to his glory. It saves us, it's very personal to us, but ultimately we turn it back and bring it back to what God has done. And it's going to take eternity to fully comprehend it. It's why we kind of should never get kind of uh, what's the word? familiar with the gospel message, the gospel story. And if you ever do get to that point where you are familiar with it, rest assured you're at fault. Because it is something that can be plumb, the depths of it can be plumbed for all eternity. God's immeasurable riches, his grace, his love and his mercy. So let's just clarify the gospel, the good news, the message of Christ to us uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish. Um, the good news, I just also want to recommend a book actually to you. What is the gospel? I read this um, a couple of months back and I thought it was fascinating. One, it's short. 
Brilliant. Two, it's hardback, so it looks good on the shelf. Hardbacks book always look better. Um, but it's, it's just a fantastic outline of the gospel of um, Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? What is the good news? That's by Greg Gilbert. And um, I just want to, I read it and was stirred again. And I just want to clarify what we, where we are, what our messages we want to bring to um, a, a city and a lost and dying world. The gospel could be summed up in four words um, God, man, Christ, response. There's a way of kind of getting it together. We have God at the beginning. God made everything. It was good. It was perfect. It was wonderful. It was actually very good. He made us at the end of it um, as kind of the pinnacle of his creation in the image of God we were made and we were there to enjoy creation. But unfortunately, man, we messed it up. There was a broken relationship. We sinned. We rebelled. We wanted to be God. That's the fundamental human problem. We want to be God. And that job is taken. And we're not very good at it either. We try and make ourselves God. We try and put things in our life above God. And we broke everything. The peace of God was shattered. Relationship was shattered between man and God, man and woman, man and 